Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Experimental pagan magic in the Golden Dawn tradition, if you hadn't noticed, is the subheading of Nick Farrell's blog page. Um, Nick Farrell with two L's and two R's dot IT. It's a great blog and essential for any devotees of the Golden Dawn tradition. And a new post he put out today, I'm sure, has some people a little uh, jittery um, in our hypersensitive world these days. He, he definitely has a reputation of being occasionally harsh or strict or stern in his view of things. But I think he gets a bad rap in that regard, uh, especially since, as his own blog says, he's an experimental list in essence, taking experimental approaches. His book, Helios Unbound, is a recreation of the Abramelin ritual, uh, but from a pagan perspective and how it could be done by pagans. So as much as he understands and comes from the tradition of the Golden Dawn, he's uh, about as outlandish and experimental as most of us tend to be who actually practice magic. So, one of the things he points out is that the middle pillar ritual, that the watchtower ritual, these are things that Israel Regardi came up with. And if anything, they're more influenced by Alistair Crowley than they are from original Golden Dawn manuscripts. At one point he says uh, a great line in his post, which you should read, it, it only takes a couple minutes. Quote, if something like the Watchtower needed to be done before every rite, Mathers would have written a paper on it. <laughs> great, great. Um, it's, a, it's a living tradition, and people are often hypersensitive about the rituals that have been included in the last hundred years. So a lot of practitioners following Don Craig's Modern Magic and, and Rigardi and other streams of... of the outgrowths of these ritual practices through various channels are going to be uh, upset to hear that what they're doing is is not necessarily what was being done originally. But that's not so interesting to most of us practitioners who who aren't new to doing these rituals regularly and experimenting with them. Anyone who has done them a lot for many years has chances are experimented in many ways. In the order I was trained in, we did a lot of experimenting, and we often did things like paring down hierarchies of names with certain rituals in certain places, um, replacing LBRP and BRH with just traditional purifying and consecrating with water and fire. Very, very common to, to pare things down, but also to well, especially when you're working on new rituals, uh, build them up and see what the difference is. That's something every occult practitioner tends to do who is serious about the work. And now, a word from our sponsors. 
While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. If you're in an order, you should follow that order's curriculum. Each of the orders that are out there and, and half good or great have different curriculums and slightly different approaches to things. Um, sure, do some of them include some misunderstandings of original reasons for doing things? Of course. Um, sometimes they learn and change those things. Sometimes they don't or they find they're useful in other ways. But again, you're following that curriculum if you're going through that order and that's fine. There's plenty of time once you've gone through the grades in whatever system or whatever, even if you're in AA or Thelema, there's plenty of time once you've gone through the basic learning to then develop things further in your own practices. It's equivalent to going through undergrad or grad school and then you know developing your own ideas through doctoral research and presenting new arguments with new experiments that haven't been done before. That is just a part and parcel with being a learning, growing human being. Probably the most interesting thing that the I saw in the blog post, the only thing that stood out as new information to me was the idea that some people thought in the original Golden Dawn that there was the potential from doing too much banishing of demagnetizing your sphere of sensation or your aura. And that's a very interesting idea. Um, I've done a lot of experimenting with the difference between banishing and invoking frequently versus doing it infrequently. But again, that's not something I did when I was learning this stuff. That's something I did in the 15 years that followed. And <laughs> there's, that's a probably, in my opinion, a good way to do it. The only way I can really, that I choose to teach or share what I've learned is in reference to my ritual diary. So essentially what I do in Hermetic Mystery School or with people who ask for help who are not tied to orders, because if you're in an order, just go through the order, is say, well, here's what I did. Here's what I went through, and this is what I got out of it. That's, to me, the best way to teach anything, rather than just come up with some sort of composite mental image of an idealized form of a thing that you think or you're directed to think makes the most sense, and then teach prescriptively, I prefer an experimental approach that's based on experience, and that's how I do it. Anyone who's been a student of the Golden Dawn history and its rituals knows what Rigardi added. Um, even the new version of the Golden Dawn book by John Michael Greer, as wonderful as Greer is, there's a lot of new mistakes in it that uh, don't exist in the previous edition. And that's sort of funny, right? So if you were even want to just understand Rigardi's Golden Dawn, you not only need the 7th edition by Greer, but you need the earlier editions. That's just a fact. Nick Farrell is right. Banishing was a footnote to the original pentagram ritual. And you can treat it as such, absolutely. It's not how I was taught, and it's not the tradition I learned, but I have experimented with that method and modus operandi, and it seems fine to me. I'm very curious to ask, ask Nick Farrell about um, Scott Michael Stenwick's practice of doing an LBRP 
but an LIRH to create a field of energy. And Nick Farrell will be doing an episode, guest episode on this podcast coming up. But we're doing it in a different way since his schedule's odd and he's in Rome. And so I'm going to open it up to questions um, from all of you. If you have a question, please do uh, DM me or message me in any of the numerous ways that are, that are available and uh, send me your questions for Nick Farrell and we'll get into it. He's written a lot of books. He was trained uh, from the Fari Ra tradition of Smaragdum Talasis and then later the Order of the Table Round, which is the unbroken stream of the Golden Dawn through the Stella Matutina via Dr. Falcon and all of those that came up through New Zealand and that's still alive and well today in various parts of the world. We have it represented, of course, by people like Pat Zaleski and, and Tony Fuller and uh, other magicians, and we're very lucky to have that alive and well. It is, in fact, uh, Tony Fuller, as Nick Farrell points out, who has a letter from Annie Horniman warning about demagnetizing the sphere of sensation by doing the banishing too often. Um, and he says in his post also that the Fare Ra forbade using the pentagram in its temple space, which had its own protections. So all that stuff's very interesting, and you should consider this. Now, again, if you're learning uh, in an order or tradition, then follow that curriculum and experiment once you're an adept in that system. Like, master a thing before you start testing it in some ways. I mean, there's a bit of flexibility, but again, you have people who have been doing it for years around you, most likely, uh, get their advice, get their input, and then test things out. That's, that's what this is all about. We, we experiment and we test. Ultimately, I think we need to be less sensitive about the uh, insights of rigorous scholarship. We should allow scholarship to give us insights about the tradition that we might not see if we're constantly reading ourselves into history, reading ourselves into the text, rather than drawing the meaning from the text. It's the difference between of eisegesis versus exegesis, and it's an important thing. You don't want to be eisegetical. You don't want to read your views into a text. You want to try and let the text speak to you out of its time and place. That is the hermeneutical, healthy approach to understanding something first before you then do the more creative tasks of interpreting it for your time and place. A text has a meaning in its time and place, and that should be understood prior to you then taking that context and meaning and interpreting it for your present context so that it has new meaning. That is the exegetical exercise that is the basis of not only homiletics, the making of sermons from religious texts, but also is the hermeneutic exercise of understanding legal codes and law codes, which is why hermeneutics are primarily studied in grad school by priests and lawyers. We see, though, the changing of traditions and innovations and alterations ubiquitously across the board. Look at just the Roman Catholic Mass or the Christian Mass. It's come a long way since Jesus first did it, however he did it. The sharing of the bread and wine and whatever it meant at that time was undoubtedly in many ways different than it is today. Sure, the theological fundamental of it may be the same, but did it mean the same to them then, those disciples sitting around him at the Last Supper? I'm not convinced that what it means today necessarily meant the same thing if it happened as we're told 
back then. Certainly in the early church, one of the problems that St. Paul rails against is the paganizing of their mass, of their sacrifice of the mass, or their, their they didn't call it that at all. They called it um, something else, the, uh, damn, what's the word? Anyway, they sometimes had, uh, for, you know, often had fortified wines with various psychoactive or entheogenic substances in it. Maybe they kept the the mass somewhat entheogenic. Sometimes they ended up having like pagan style orgies. If some pagans showed up from a local shrine in whatever Greek town they were celebrating in. And St. Paul was upset about this. So he was railing against it, which is how we know that it was happening, of course. And that mass has changed even in our own century. Uh, people older than me remember when the mass was a two hour long Latin affair, pounding your chest, chanting mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I myself attended a parish for a long time within the Roman communion that only did the Mass that way, and they have an entire priesthood order within the Roman Catholic Church uh, that only does the old version of the Mass, uh, whether you call it tridentine or not, that's not entirely accurate, but you know what I mean. And then, so at the Second Vatican Council, they revised the Mass, and they put it into English, and then they even put their new version of the Latin Mass as a translation of the new English Mass. So if you go to a Roman Catholic Church for a Latin Mass, chances are you're seeing the Latin version of the new Catholic Mass. You're not seeing that old one that everyone grew up in. And it's interesting to think that when you read older writers and, and people from before the 60s and 70s, anyone from those times had a very, very different experience of what the Mass was, like radically different to any modern Roman Catholic's understanding of the Mass. And these changes aren't just from the last century, but they've been going on for 2,000 years, constantly. Then you have the fact that there were sometimes illiterate priests who had to do the Mass from from phonetically from what they had heard in their trainings. That wasn't common, of course. Mostly, most of the time, the priests were the only one who could read in a community, and there was one Bible strapped with a chain to the, the uh, uh, what's it called? I'm, it's, I'm forgetting the word of the, uh, uh, you know, the thing the book goes on. Anyway, the point is we shouldn't be afraid of scholarly separation between our practices and what we learn. It, it leads to insights. If we live just in our uh, pre-understanding, our vorverständnis, all the time, we end up missing things. For example, a fascinating case is most of history, it was believed that Ramon Lull, the blessed Raymond Lull, or Lully sometimes as he's called, um, had no connection with Kabbalah when he wrote his works. Uh, interesting character, um, a statue of him exists in Palma, city of Palma in Majorca to this day. I got to spend some time admiring the architecture around there and different things in that place when I was in Zelator in 97 under Halebop doing my ritual work on a veranda in the Majorcan countryside. It was a beautiful time and I studied a lot of Raymond Lull back then and he writes about spheres and very Kabbalistic sounding interpretations of things. But it was only due, and if we, if we continued to believe what we thought based on the evidence that he had no connection to the Kabbalah, it was just a similar parallel, we might very well still think that. But scholars 
take a different approach and they question these assumptions, which is just so crucial. And as a result of that, I think it was Moshe Adele, but it might have been Elliot Wolfson. I covered it on this podcast. Their investigations led them to discover that there had been a correspondence between Rem and Lull and a famous Kabbalist living in Italy. Um, I forget his name, but we covered it again, so you can check that out. And that's fascinating, because all of a sudden we know, wow, Raymond Lull was influenced by the Kabbalah, so his discussion of spheres was a reference to the Kabbalistic Sephirot, and that's fascinating. And there's more discoveries like that for us to find if we uh, keep open minds and don't get too hypersensitive about protecting our approach and our tradition, our own personal spirituality and the things that we practice that make us have more abundant lives. That's one thing, and it's not the same thing as its value isn't determined by its uh, pre-existence in a certain time and place and supported by founding documents or original practices. Things change, things develop, that's for the best. And as we uncover how things were, sometimes we revise what we do, and that's called growth. So, amen. And uh, please shoot any questions you have for the mighty and controversial Nick Farrell who will uh, be coming up hopefully later this week on Magic Without Fears. A final little update on this podcast. I've been experimenting with putting ad blocks clumped together so that when they occur, you can take a break, go to the bathroom, um, and that way it breaks up the episode much less. I don't get to decide if ads go in there. I'm very lucky for any I get. Obviously, because of the content of this podcast, I don't get host-read ads, which is where the real money is. But I do need to try and get whatever support I can to justify still spending the average of 20 hours a week that it takes to make this podcast happen for you all and for our enjoyment. So, um, thanks to all those who do subscribe or donate. That's very, very helpful. And uh, please do it more. There, as more people subscribe to exclusive membership, I'll do more exclusive content uh, to grow with that membership. And, of course, there's videos. You can get the password for the website page with videos and stuff, uh, other treats, um, by subscribing to the exclusive membership, which you can do weekly for a couple bucks or annually is the best deal for 50 bucks. Or you can just donate. It really does help. And I'll have uh, some cryptocurrency links for you crypto nuts out there who want to donate through crypto very soon. I don't understand how any of that stuff works, but some of my friends do, and uh, so that will happen. Thank you for the support. Thanks for listening, and hopefully when you get these strange ads that pop up, you go, yay, that means that they're giving him a few cents, and that really does make a big difference. Thank you for the support, and have a great day. Visit magicwithoutfears.com for exclusive membership. Thank you very much. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit 
www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk